In November this year, we'll celebrate the 100th anniversary of the ending of the First World War, or, as it was known at the time, the Great War. The armistice was signed at 5am on November 11th, 1918, and came into effect six hours later. The centenary of the war has brought about a plethora of books and programmes looking at the major battles and life on the front line. Today we're going to discuss a book by Kate Aidy that looks at what life was like for the people back home, manning the factories, the coal mines, the buses and the trains. With so many men signed up for the army, the navy and the new army flying corps, most of the jobs were inevitably done by women. So, Kate, welcome to Emirates World again. Nice to see you again. Welcome again to Dubai. You're a bit of a regular here now, aren't you? Mm -hmm. Um, I'm assuming you enjoy your visits here every March, getting away from the cold, dark, snowy UK. Oh, I mean, the climate, wonderful. You look out in the morning and go, ooh, sunshine again. How many festivals have you actually attended? Oh, uh, about half a dozen. I was here 10 years ago at the first as indeed was I, yeah. and it's amazingly successful. Yeah. Worked really well. Now, your latest book is entitled Fighting on the Home Front, The Legacy of Women in World War One." So what prompted you to write the book? Obvious first question, I'm sorry, but... Uh, Mainly a publisher. <laughs> but um, I had written some years previously a book about women in uniform, which was to look back over many centuries at the kind of involvement women have had in military operations and in wars. And it's a fascinating story. Uh, when it comes to World War One. Uh, what you find yourself looking at is not the battlefields, which were very static, as we all know. People, the soldiers, the men were stuck in the trenches. Huge amounts of World War One, where there's appalling great pa um, panorama of uh, grim attrition between armies of men uh, on land stuck in trenches and just firing at each other. And so you ask yourself, where were the women? What were they doing? And when you start looking into it, it's a fascinating story. There are many aspects to it. And you find that amongst the people who were over in France, for example, which uh, British people and the French will remember as the the absolute sort of image they have, even though the war was fought in many continents. And you notice that there are women in the picture. Now, they're not actually in the trenches, but they are in what were called the rear echelon amongst all the troops um, having R&R, &R, rest and recreation, in other words, out of the trenches, which they only went into uh, for a short while. Uh, they didn't spend the whole war in there for a week or so. And then they were rotated out um, back to the camps. And amongst these tens of thousands of men, there were very, very large numbers of women. And I thought, hmm. And then you looked actually at the home front and the way the war was kept going and particularly ammunition factories and engineering works. And again, it's women. Those women actually over in France are part of the immense number of voluntary organizations which sprang up almost instantaneously after the announcement that we were at war with Germany. And they were the most determined, doughty, 
dedicated and feisty women. And they went very much right as far as they could. Some of them medical, as nurses, obviously. Some as VADs, voluntary aid detachment, which were volunteer first aiders, but they ended up doing almost full-time nursing. And so many more who set up cafes, cafeteria, canteens for the troops off duty. Um, libraries. They set up lecture series. And one wonderful woman set up the most extraordinary amount of touring entertainment, theater, concert music, um, little groups of classical violinists, poets reading their work. All of this as a sort of aid to keeping up the morale of the troops while they, when they weren't in the trenches. All done by women, all organized by them, and all the money raised by them. Nowadays, we're quite used to seeing women fighting in the front line. It's quite accepted that women serve in the armed forces. In some places. In um, some it's places. still a minority of countries. And in some, they are still barred from some of what they call the close combat duties. But it's been a major increase in the last 20 years. Mm. Did women actually fight at all in the First World War? Did any, any of them see frontline action? If you look at Eastern Europe, which isn't such a well-known story in, um, let's say, uh, in Britain, um, Eastern Europe, you find quite a lot of women who were recruited into Eastern European armies because there was a tradition that, for example, in Russia, if a peasant died fighting, uh, his wife sometimes took his place, not always voluntarily either. It was just not considered particularly odd, particularly if peasant women did it. Um, and there were numbers in the Serbian and Bulgarian armies. But the f one single woman from Britain who got into uniform was a extraordinary Yorkshire woman called Flora Sands, a vicar's daughter from near York. And she, first of all, volunteered to go to Serbia with one of the very big uh, voluntary organizations, which was bringing first aid and welfare uh, to the Serbian army. And the Serbs were very, very much in the sort of uh, the line of getting sympathy in Britain after Belgium. And the terrible things that happened there, people very sorry for the Belgians helping refugees who came to Britain immediately after the Germans invaded, came plucky little Serbia. And it, it, was, it was iconic in a way. It was seen as a little country um, sort of nobly trying to defend itself. And Flora Sands went over as a VAD, an assistant medical worker, and she found herself in the middle of a battle, and she was, you know, trying to attend to people, and it was so terrible, and the Serbs were getting a beating from the Bulgarians, that she put down her bandages and said, this is pointless, give me a rifle. She was a countrywoman, she knew how to shoot, uh, she was accepted immediately into the Serbian army as a private. She was promoted after frontline duty, where she was on active service to sergeant. She was then injured 
in one major engagement, uh, got better a few months later, went back into the front line, and was known to one and all as the lovely sergeant. Very feminine, huge sense of humor, not disguised as a man, very much, you know, an English woman. And she served right to the end of the war and was awarded the Cara George Medal, which is the equivalent um, of, of the VC. So she survived the war? She did indeed, and then married an officer she met and lived in Belgrade until World War II, and then had a go at the Germans, <laughs> not actually, but actually wore uniform and refused to be interned and refused to be sent home. And then after the war and her husband died, she came back and she died in Suffolk. 1952. So, it's an extraordinary story, and she's not known in Britain. And the reason I, I mention her particularly is because when I was in Serbia during the Balkan Wars of the 1990s, and I was under bombardment from tank fire in a dreadful engagement in a village where we got ourselves into a fair old pickle and f spent hours one night under fire, I was with a Serbian interpreter, and she said to me, while well, I and my cameraman were sort of lying on the floor and stuff was screaming overhead. It was terrible, terrible stuff. House next door exploded. It was dreadful. And she said, you must be brave, like brave English women. And I, oh, yeah, sure. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and she said, like Flora Zandis, bravest English woman ev ever. All Serbian children are taught about brave English women who fought for us. And I said... Who? She is still famous in Serbia. We have forgotten her. Did that sow a little bit of interest in the back of your oh, mind? Oh, yes. And I realized there were many more. Uh, and women who were, during the First World War, nationally famous in Britain. A front of newspapers, lots of articles about them, interviews with them. A lot of them came back, gave talks. People like Mabel Stobart, totally forgotten, comes from Dorset. And in the great retreat of the Serbian army in blizzards over terrible mountains down towards the Adriatic, where tens of thousands of Serbians and other fighters perished, she led the main medical unit, treating people. She's known as the Lady on the black horse. She is again an iconic figure. And that's Mabel Stobart. Yeah. What a lovely name too. Yeah. What about back home in, in the UK? Well, uh, all the men had gone to the front, or at least a lot of men had gone to the front. And the women were immediately ignored. And those who had been campaigning for the vote in the suffrage movement, the suffragettes and the suffragists, were very conscious that they were likely to be ignored. For a start, they hadn't been consulted about the war because they weren't in Parliament and they didn't have the vote. And as the war machine got going, there were immediate calls from those who'd been in the suffrage movement, particularly Mrs. Pankhurst said, what's the point you know, of campaigning for, you know, fighting for the vote if there's no country left to vote in? And she turned not all but a great majority of the activists in the suffrage movement into determined campaigners to make sure that women would actually do their bit in war. 
Now, the government had no idea what they should do. It really ignored them initially. I, what were women for? Uh, they were at home. They kept the home fires burning. There was no suggestion that they should have anything to do with the armed forces. These women were incredibly well-connected through the suffrage movement. They had to say they had a network would understate it. They were phenomenally well organized and had been for years. And they threw themselves into, first of all, a campaign to say the right to serve. Let's be part of this. We want to do our bit. We are energetic. We are capable. We want to do things. And of course, they realized they were going to have to organize themselves. So in the very first few months of the war, there were literally hundreds of little Voluntary organizations popped up. They have every single variation under the sun of the world's women's voluntary. Voluntary reserve, the women's auxiliary, auxiliary corps, women's helpers league, women's volunteer. They were everywhere. Every town managed to get some sort of group going. Uh, some of them even invented their own uniforms. And then it became fairly obvious quite quickly that they were really needed. There was very little welfare. I mean, the poor were just, you know, scraped along in 1914. And with men going off to war and very little money coming in, there were really increased social problems. These women dived into it to organize everything from soup kitchens to um, all kinds of um, aided schemes to get women a little bit of um, uh, income. They were absolutely determined to do their bit. They then started doing more things, becoming messengers, quite a lot of lady motorcyclists. Um, they got into the communications business. Um, quite a lot of them saw the social upheaval, a lot of problems around army bases, and the first entirely voluntary, not recognized by the officials, lady police turned up. And so, bit after bit, right across society, women started to make an impact, and they were hugely efficient. But, of course, the main thing which they're remembered for is the government's call about nine months, a year into the war, and particularly after what was called the Shell Scandal, when frontline top brass said, we are running out of ammunition. And there was a massive political push to build new factories, and automatically the only workforce that was available would be women. Over a million women went into both engineering and munitions. Dangerous work, long hours, explosions, accidents, but they got paid more than they usually did as working women. They got twice, for example, the amount they'd get as a servant, where most working class women were employed. I have to point out, they got half what men were paid for the same job. But they loved it because they felt they were recognized as having an official part of the war. Women weren't really part of society. They were an appendage to men who were citizens with the vote, with far more rights in law than women had. 
and they were never really considered as part of the um, official part of the of, of the nation. When the first women in a munitions factory got their weekly wage packet, they were the first women ever in Britain to be paid by the government. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's extraordinary. There were no women civil servants then. There were no women in the post office, except a few sort of outlying rural districts where there was nobody else, but they made, they couldn't deliver the post because it was said in Parliament that they only knew the addresses of their friends. <laughs> uh, they were considered to be inconsequential, have smaller brains, be inadequate, weak, fluffy, silly, hysterical, or just not up to it. And so they were barred from most of the professions. There were a small number of women in medicine who were confined to treating only women and children, not by law, but because no man would ever take off his clothes in front of a lady he didn't know well. And all of this um, contributed to the fact that women were off the main radar when it came to employment. Well, if they were employed as servants, right through in Wardian times, just before the war, they didn't actually figure in the official employment statistics. It wasn't really work, you see. You know, all of that. How times cleaning. have changed. Yes, they have. Um, what you can look back on, though, is how phenomenal these women were. They were up against absolute, outright, in your face, not just prejudice, but hostility. And during the war, not everybody said, oh, isn't it marvelous that they're coming into the workforce doing all this. Some people were affronted, they were enraged, some were outraged, thought it was against public decency, particularly to see women wearing trousers, which they did for practical purposes. They were sometimes pelted in the streets, they were jeered at, they weren't welcomed everywhere. So it's not right to think that suddenly a great golden glow of feminism covered the land. They were grudgingly accepted and for the duration, the magic words which said, we'll put up with you until the men come back when the war's over. And that's exactly what happened. But what they did was set the example and prove that women could do it. Hitherto, nobody had thought them capable, never mind not wanting them to do the job or thinking it was improper or against tradition. They thought they couldn't. And there they had women in engineering, learning the skills which, oh, hitherto only a man could manage. They were delivering the post. They were going into the civil service. They were doing complex jobs. They were taking decisions. Now, to us, this sounds ludicrous. But for most people, they thought women had not been capable of doing such things. The little dears. Kate, in researching this book, did you also look into your own 
background, your family background? Um, complicated things there, um, uh, in the sense that you you hear stories, you know, coming down in your family. Um, my my favorite, I think, is that um, my mother remembered her father, and uh, he had gone off to war, leaving her mother sitting um, at home in Lincolnshire and needing to get to Colchester, where he was stationed, because uh, he was in the Coldstream Guards and she was terrified he wasn't being fed properly. So she got on her best hat, lots of flowers and things, and you know, there she was in her best apron, long skirts, as most women still hung on to during the war, and with a basket of goodies on a train to Colchester, when suddenly it came to a stop, and two men in the carriage shouted at her, pushed open the door, one of those carriages, you know, with individual compartments, pushed open the door, it was on the top of an embankment, and she found herself hurtling out of it and rolling down the embankment. They pushed her out? Yes. My God. She was horrified. And it turned out they followed, because she rolled down, and... As she was rolling, she was clutching her hat and her basket, came to a rest at the bottom of the embankment, stared in the sky, and as near she felt as she could almost touch them was a German Zeppelin hovering overhead. Huge airship. And she could see the soldiers in the basket, the gondola below it. She told the story apparently endlessly to the family, and the point of the story was that she was outraged, outraged at the sight of Germans. Well, not quite. At the sight of Germans who could see her petticoats. <laughs> what a wonderful story. An Edwardian lady. Just, just a reminder of how people and women saw life and how they were made to see it. Kate, it's been fascinating talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. It's always a great pleasure to, to chat to you. And uh, I do hope you will come back again with a new book. You've written five. I'd love to see number six. I'll think about it. Please. And uh, thanks for joining us on Emirates World today. Thank you. Thank you.